Hi, I'm Mandy. And I'm Ben. And this is Behind the Visa Window with ex-visa officers. Where we give the insider's perspective on the U.S. visa interview process. Hey everyone, welcome back to Behind the Visa Window with ex-visa officers. Today we're going to talk about prior refusals. Everybody knows somebody who has had their U.S. visa refused, but very few people know the reason why. Why do you think visas get refused, Ben? Uh, well, I'll, there's a lot of reasons for people to get refused. There are obviously the, you know, the serious ones, like someone has, uh, has committed a felony in the U.S. or they overstayed their visa for a number of years. But really, I think what people want to know about is 214B. And I wonder if people are familiar with this code. Yeah, oh gosh, that code section came up all the time. It was, I think, the number one reason for the visa refusal. And generally, it is on a piece of paper that visa applicants will get at the window if they have been refused under this section of the law. Right. Uh, it, and the visa officers will tell you, oh, you've been refused. Here's this paper. It explains everything. Now, obviously, it explains nothing. Um, and the visa and the visa applicants walk away from the window thinking, okay, I'm more confused than when I started. I didn't get to say anything. I didn't get to show any documents. And now they tell me this explains everything. And this piece of paper just kind of has really ambiguous language that says, basically, I don't actually have any connection to my own home country, which is patently absurd. <laughs> um, I think that's a really good point, Ben. And so this section of the law, you know, for those of you that don't know, uh, it basically says that every single visa applicant who comes to the window is going to be considered an intending immigrant by the visa officer, unless they prove otherwise. So unless they're able to convince the visa officer that they're not intending to immigrate to the US, um, this is what they're gonna think. So the burden is actually on the visa applicant to make a case for themselves. Right, and, and I know some of you listening, you might think, wait, hold on, is, are they saying what I think that they're saying, that you're guilty until you can prove yourself innocent? And um, as alarming as that sounds, that is the truth. Uh, under US immigration law, when you apply for a visa, you are assumed to have the intent to use your visa inappropriately and stay in the US permanently, right? And not returning to your home country until you can prove to the consular officer's satisfaction that you actually don't have that intent, that you that you actually are going to use it appropriately. Now, I know Mandy, when we, you and I were in there, both of us heard this uh, this horrifying phrase that there's no such thing as a bad refusal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which the, that. that's not just yeah, it was not just you know kind of some hearsay. It was what the managers told us, mm -hmm. um, and they actually kind of are backed up by the law, right? As long as that visa officer is not convinced then that's true. There is no such thing as an incorrect refusal under the law. That doesn't mean that all their decisions are correct. Because a lot of times, legally, they have the right to refuse someone, right? They're justified. But that doesn't mean that the person that they refused actually should have been refused. And we see a lot of people in those situations. That's right. And I think the problem is that there are so many other external pressures that these applicants and maybe even immigration attorneys don't understand you know, we have a limited number of consular officers or visa officers in the office. Sometimes when demand for visas go up, all of a sudden, you know, each officer will end up with way more work than is expected. They're still expected to get all of that work done, which means interviewing every single visa applicant. 
but that also means that every applicant will end up getting less time. And what I have seen uh, behind the window with all of my consular colleagues is that, you know, we're always looking for those quick approvals and quick refusals. And that is purely based on instinct, based on, you know, our experience doing this over and over again until we just get to this level of comfort where we can look at someone, whether it's right or wrong, and say, oh, yeah, this person will be fine going to the United States. And sometimes we'll say, oh, there's something about that person I just don't like. I'm not sure what it is, but it sort of raises a feeling of alarm within me. And I'm just going to refuse that visa because I would rather refuse the visa than to issue uncomfortably. Right, right. And the thing about that is that the officers get better at it as they go along, right? They start out and they're very timid. You know, they take their time and then they speed up. And the feeling that, that they get and that I got, and I'm sure everyone gets, is that you're getting better at it, right? But you can only know if you're getting better at it if you have feedback, right? If you then know after, after you're done making all these decisions, if those decisions were correct, right? And it's impossible to know all of those. Now, what the visa officers can get feedback on is if they've issued a visa and then the person does stay in the U.S. permanently right? Or goes to the U.S. and gets arrested, there will be, you know, they'll, they'll find out about that. And so they kind of, they get negative feedback in terms of issuances that turned out to be bad, but there's no way for them to ever find out about refusals that turned out to be good, right? Like they, there's no way that they'll ever know, oh, I refused someone, but then they actually had good intentions. Or, you know, this, may, this could be tracked, but it, as far as I know, I've never heard of it being tracked. If I, issue, if I refused a visa and then you got them the next week and you issued their visa and they went to the US and used their visa correctly, I'll never get that feedback to tell me, oh, you refused them, but look, it turns out they actually deserved their visa. You know, so there's, mm -hmm. there's kind of you know, the, the lack of that feedback to actually teach the officers if what they're doing is correct. They only know that they feel more comfortable and more confident as they move through the interviews. And that's why they'll speed up. When, when you were in Beijing, was there a, a target, a target number of interviews that you needed to do per hour? Yeah, generally you wanted to do about 20 an hour. And in Beijing, at the time I was there, we were doing about five hours of interviews a day. Sometimes we would do a little bit more than that if, you know, if there was more people in the waiting room and the waiting room had to be cleared out. And so it was very, very busy when I was there about uh, 4,400 people would come through that waiting room every day. Each person had to be fingerprinted, interviewed, you know, had their say uh, before they leave uh, the embassy. And so it was a very, very difficult, I think it was probably the most difficult job I've ever had because you were under time pressure to make decisions that you knew had a huge impact on this person's life and their relationship to the United States, whether they're just going for a business trip, maybe going for four years of study, uh, or maybe they want to, you know, permanently immigrate to the U.S. legally and get that green card. Um, every decision we made uh, was so important, but I think as consular officers, we couldn't think like that because if you did, you know, the sheer gravity of how important that role is, which mm -hmm. is kind of break you down. So you kind yeah. of had to think about it like, oh, this is not that important. A lot of times we think, you know what, I refuse that person because I wasn't really sure about them, but you know what, they have another chance. They can always come back tomorrow and interview again. And there's a lot of inconsistency in how we think about these. I think in order to make ourselves feel better, to be honest with you, because we all know that 
once a person has been refused once, twice, three times, at a certain point, it becomes really, really difficult for them to get that visa because the next visa officer is not going to say, you know what, all six of my colleagues have looked at this case and they have decided this person doesn't deserve a visa, but I you know, think they do. So I'm going to overturn that decision. It does happen, but it's pretty rare. That's a really good point. And I think that's something that, that if you're applying for a visa, this is something to take into consideration. If you've been refused before, that plays a role in the next visa interview that you're going to have. And if you just think about the mechanics of what's happening, uh, if I'm a visa officer and you come to my visa window and I open up your case and I see, oh, my colleague who's just sitting three seats down from me refused your visa last week. Well, you're asking me to disagree with my colleague and my colleague and I have had the same training. We've got the same boss. We've got the same expectations on us. And you're asking me to make a different decision than they made, right? So you're, you're asking me one, two, two, uh, to say that my colleague was incorrect, right? And then also to risk me being incorrect and then my, my colleague being proven right if, if the visa applicant then does turn to use the visa inappropriately. So you're, you are asking them to be bold, right? You're asking them to, to take a risk and be bold and not all of them will do that. So when you have a prior refusal, there, there are definite ways that you can, you can overcome that and you can get your visa issued. Um, and we, you know, we help people do this all the time. Um, it's not, it's not easy. You got to be creative. You've got to, you've got to be proactive, but it can happen. Um, but when you, when you go into that situation, you need to know that that's definitely having an effect and you're going to have to, uh, approach it from that human point of view that you're asking them to do something that's not the easiest thing for them to do. Right. And so, and you, you know, some of our colleagues were more conservative. We might even say timid. If they saw that one of their colleagues had previously refused someone, they're not going to issue it. You know, it would take it would take a mountain of evidence uh, right in their face to get them to even consider overturning it. Others might be, well, I know this is how I was. I was overturning refusals all the time, uh, which is you know one of the reasons why now I like helping people get their visas is because I really felt like I didn't want people to uh, to suffer that injustice. But then there's there's the you know the eighty percent in the middle who can be swayed, right? If you've got the right case, if you've got the right evidence, right? Mm -hmm. And you bring up such an interesting point, Ben. And I think for so many people, it's so hard until it happens to them to actually imagine their visa being refused. You know, nobody goes into their visa interview thinking, hey, I'm going to be refused my visa today. Most of the time they think they're going to be successful, which is why I think so many professionals in our industry call it a visa stamp. They think it's a rubber stamp. You just go in there, you show up. You know, somebody will just say, all right, you're done. We're pasting it in, pick up your passport in two days. But that's really not how it happens. And uh, interestingly enough, I think when I became a consular officer, a visa officer, I was just flabbergasted at how easy it was to refuse visas. Um, you know, and I don't know if you remember this or if you did this when you were in Guangzhou, but we actually had something called hotkeys, which meant that we could refuse or approve people with a click of a single button, or actually maybe it was two buttons. And so it made it really, really easy for us to refuse uh, visa applicants with virtually no repercussions. Um, and also, if you were to look at the data, you know, it really is not that easy to get a visa. Based on the State Department statistics from 2018, 
Um, this was before the pandemic, so I think this is probably more representative of what would be going on, you know, under normal circumstances. About 32% of business and tourist travelers would get their visas refused in a given year. So that's one in three. Um, so it's definitely not an easy process. And then once you get refused, you're like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And then that's when you realize, oh, so this can happen. And, um, you know, it's, it's not easy to get that turned around. Yeah. You mentioned those hot keys and that's, it's because efficiency is a, is a big, uh, a big motivator for the visa officers. Their managers are telling them, you got to go faster. You got to go faster. They have to get through this volume because right now during COVID, it's a little bit different. But uh, under normal times, you know, they don't want their wait time to get too high, right? There was a, a mandate from, a, from above that they need to keep the wait time to get a visa appointment below a certain number of days, which means that they needed to do a certain number of visa interviews per day to keep the wait time down. And that means, you know, they only have a certain number of, of customer service windows where they can do these interviews and a certain number of officers. And then it's just the math, you know, adding up, okay, well, this many officers have to do this many visa interviews per hour, right? And you said, you know, when you were doing 20 per hour, and I'm sure some were even doing more than that, 25 or 30 per hour. Sometimes I was doing more than that. That's, you know, at best three minutes per applicant. Mm -hmm. And then when you take into account, you know, getting one applicant uh, up to the window, getting their passport, scanning that, pulling up the documents, and then, you know, the time in between applicants, maybe, maybe it's two and a half minutes, right? And so you've only got that amount of time to speak to an applicant. Now, when people come to me and they, they say, hey, you know, this is my situation. These are all my documents. This is, this is my entire life story. Can I get the visa? Well, I can analyze that for sure. But then that's not representative of what happens in a visa interview because they're not going to know your whole life story. Mm -hmm. They're not going to see all your documents. They are only going to get whatever inputs they can get from you within that two minutes and 30 seconds, sometimes mm -hmm. even less, sometimes one minute, right? Some people tell me that they were refused after just one or two questions. And then they're told, no, you, your visa is denied. And they're told to, to go, to, to go mm -hmm. away, right? So yeah. they didn't take into account the totality of your circumstances, your, your entire resume and application. They took a few pieces of data and then made the decision, right? Mm -hmm. And so when people present to me their entire, their entire CV, it's like, well, okay, if I take these bullet points from your CV. Yeah, you could get a you could get a visa, I think. But that might not be the information that the visa officer considers. Yeah. They might ask the wrong question. They might ask you something where it's not a really great bullet point on your CV and you give them that answer and then they think, "Okay, I don't think I'm going to issue your visa." Maybe they'll ask a follow-up or two, but they've already decided and then your visa is denied. Yeah. Yeah, it's honestly I feel like it's kind of a gauntlet for visa applicants and one that they're not even really aware of until they run into a refusal situation. And you said something earlier that I thought was really interesting, you know, talking about seeing prior refusal cases at your window from your colleagues. Um, and I'm not sure most people know this, but once you've made a decision on a visa, um, say you refuse a visa, you actually cannot make another decision on the visa. So this is sort of the State Department's way of safeguarding your interests, making sure that you were getting, quote unquote, a fresh look at your application. And so if I were to get somebody who comes up to my window and I'm like, oh, wait, I remember you and I'm seeing my own notes. I refused you last week. I'm going to have to hand you off to my colleague who can, you know, give you the interview. 
Um, this is problematic, mostly because consular sections are very tight knit. Like Ben mentioned, you know, we work in these windows sitting, you know, just a few feet away from each other. We actually tend to have lunch together. Sometimes we hang out on weekends. So this is a very tight group of people sort of in the same culture. And a lot of times, you know, and I'm a little embarrassed to admit this then, but, you know, if I were to get my own refusal case back, I tended to hand it off to an officer who I knew we were sort of along similar lines in how we make decisions because there's always the visa officer who approves everybody. And then there's the officer who denies everybody. And then you sort of are like, okay, somewhere- Just so we're clear, I'm the former. I'm the former, <laughs> I'm the one that approves everybody. <laughs> right, he's the one that approves everybody. And so sometimes you get these weird little clicks of consular officers in sections. And so it really is not as straightforward as you might believe, like, oh, I'm applying again, I'm getting another visa officer, fresh look, totally brand new start, clean slate. Um, it's, it's really logistically speaking, it doesn't really work like that. Um, but, you know, I do think that, you know, I think the state department tries to make sure everybody is sort of on the same, you know, the same standards. We used to have these weekly meetings where we would have something called norming sessions to make it, you know, make it so that you're not getting one type of decision one way. And then if you were to go to a different window to a different visa officer, you would get a totally different type of decision. What do you think about that, Ben? Yeah, we had, yeah, those norming sessions where they're, they're trying to make sure that everyone's getting the same analysis, right? right. Um, it's impossible, but with some factual stuff, you know, they can say, okay, well, we're gonna consider this information in this way, we're going to consider this other information in that way, but it's impossible. And it's impossible because if you've applied for a visa already, you know this, or if you've, if you've been looking into this and doing investigations, um, talking to, to friends, family that have already applied, classmates, or even you know some visa agents out there, you've probably found out that sometimes the officers will maybe even be from the country where they're doing the interview. They were born there and then moved to America. They speak the language fluently in that country. They know about the culture uh, and not just the culture, but they know about the institutions. They know how the education system works. They know how uh, real estate is purchased. All these kinds of things that allow you to interact with somebody and kind of be able to intuit what's going on in their life, right? Where do they fall in society? How well off is this family? Could this family afford to pay for education in the US for a certain number of years, et cetera? And then there are other visa officers who have never been to that country before setting foot there as a US government employee. They were taught the language for six months to a year back in the US before they showed up. Um, some of them, let's say that they weren't even a great language student. You know, they might have just barely passed their language exam to be able to show up at the at the consulate. They show up. It's two weeks since they've arrived, and they're told, "Okay, your training's over. Go for it. You're on your own." And that really is how it works. It's you know, two weeks and then do it. Um, and I that person, without any on the ground experience, with very limited language skills, is is expected to make life-changing decisions for the visa applicants that show up at his window from mm -hmm. that day forward, right? And so you might show up and get somebody that you can speak your native language to uh, fluently and be well understood, or you might get somebody who isn't gonna understand very much at all if you're speaking your na native language and you might need to rely on English um, and, you, and you might need to like 
just very simply describe very common things about your country and about how things work in your country to them um, in mm -hmm. order to, 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 to win them over to your side. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. And, you know, I feel so badly for visa applicants because I feel like this is so much that they don't know, but yet they go into this process, you know, expecting to be understood to sort of have their fair shake, not really understanding all of these pressures facing visa officers behind that window that they're not aware of. And, you know, I have to admit, after I've been talking to 150 people a day, um, you know, it could make you quite cranky if you, you know, feel like, uh, you know, a visa applicant asks you a question and to them, this is the first time they've ever asked the question. Of course, it makes sense that they wouldn't know that, but to the visa officer, they might have already answered that question 50 times. And so, you know, occasionally they, you know, they might come across as not being all that friendly or all that patient. And it's just because of this time pressure that they're under to make these decisions uh, you know, time and time again, and knowing how important those decisions are. So it actually kind of, you know, <laughs> it kind of dredges up a lot of memories for me talking about yeah. this experience with you, because it was really, you know, sort of what I breathed day in and day out, I guess, both of us um, for years at a time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. 100%. Um, I wanted to bring up one of the, one of the reasons that I feel is a, is the kind of the, the rationale behind a lot of these 214B refusals. And tell me if you agree with me on this. Um, a lot of applicants, they come out of their interviews and they tell me, oh, I, I was refused because um, they asked me this question and I didn't answer the question well, or because I told them that, you know, my uncle's paying for my, my schooling rather than my father, or, um, oh, I, I got the name, I got the address of the school wrong when, when they asked me about it, these types of things. Um, now, that, that, it's logical. It's, it's understandable that you go into this and then you're trying to read the tea leaves and, and try to figure out what happened, what went wrong, right? Um, but you don't, you don't know what's going on in their, in their head. You don't know why they made this decision. So it might just be the last thing that they asked you before they refused you. It might have been the reaction you saw on their face when you gave an answer that made, made you think that that's why you got refused. But a lot of times, as, as we know, it's really just kind of the, the totality of what they're, not your entire circumstances, but what they're thinking about your whole, your whole situation, right? And so it's not one reason in particular. In fact, you might have a great resume, a great application, and each piece of data from your application on its own looks, looks great and probably would you know, lead a, a consular officer to think, oh, well, yeah, if this showed up on an application, I would probably issue it. But if you add them all together and you start stacking layer upon layer of, of complexity, of individuality, of uniqueness, right? All of a sudden, they're not thinking of, of you in, in their mind as this archetypal issuance, right? That they're trained to try to spot. All of a sudden, you're becoming this full-fleshed real-life character with in intricacies and complexities and, and incongruities in your story. And then because the complexity gets high, their confusion goes higher because they're trying to make a decision on a real human's entire life, right? But only having 90 seconds to, I don't know, say 90 to 100 to 240 seconds to make this decision. And then there's just too much, too much complexity. They might be confused about some things that might not make sense to them. And so they refuse you just because they're confused. Yes, 
Yes, I absolutely agree with that, Ben. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I think, you know, anything unique about your case, any extenuating circumstances that makes your case more complicated ups your chances of getting refused, definitely. Uh, because if the visa officer will not have time to figure out what is going on. So anything that brings doubt to their minds makes them ask you more questions that they then can't answer in their minds will just make them feel uncomfortable and unconfident um, approving that visa. And so what ends up happening is usually pretty unfortunate. And I think it's funny. I think one of the problems is a lot of times, just like you said, visa applicants interpret their refusals a certain way. They think they know why they were refused. And then they turn around and they go tell you know, their immigration attorney or whoever helped them with the visa process, oh, this is why I was refused. But really, that's probably not the reason because these officers are taught to look at a case holistically, at the whole picture. So it could be a variety of factors. And yet, you know, the work that we do at Argo, you know, we're a company of former consular officers. We help clients with preparing for their visa interviews. It's interesting to me how the second we hear what questions were asked at an interview, the second we're, you know, they describe to us the scene of what happened, we can almost pinpoint, you know, in a, I think pretty definitively why this person was refused because we just went through so much of that decision-making ourselves when we were visa officers. Um, and then we can figure out, okay, so this is why, this is what was confusing, or this is what the officer didn't understand. And how can we clarify that for the client? How can we clarify that for the applicant? And I think that's where we really provide value. And it's, um, it's a pretty amazing feeling to know that you have helped somebody, um, you know, really explain themselves well, really be able to advocate for themselves um, so that they, you know, get a fair shake at the process. Yeah, it's uh, interesting what you said about intuitively understanding from from doing all those interviews and all those norming sessions, right, where we're, we're, we're talking about these cases. It's not even just the norming sessions, though, is it? When you work in a consular section, you live and breathe it. You're taught you're doing the job all day long. You go in your lunch break and you're talking about the cases that you had in the morning with your colleagues, right? You're talking yeah. about what happened, what was going on here, right? You're tossing these ideas around, trying to understand things, you know, and that's another way where all the, the consular officers thinking starts to become normalized. Mm -hmm. um, after work, you know, you hang out with these same people and guess what the conversations are? It's still visas, right? Mm -hmm. Consular officers are talking about visas 100% of the time mm -hmm. while they're serving in these tours. I added up just the numbers, just the number of hours that I was actually doing the job. So eight hours a day while I was working in the in the embassy and consulates. Um, you know, this doesn't even include all the conversations that I had about visas during my lunch break, after work, right at happy hour, at dinner, but just during work hours. Uh, it was it was it's over eight thousand hours. I mean, I think I added it up to about eighty six hundred hours of wow. visas, right? Um, <laughs> And you know, there's the the concept of the 10,000 hour rule, where where you need to get to 10,000 hours um, of practice in something before you can become a master at it. I don't yeah. know if it's expert or master. I kind of prefer master. I know that you like the term expert a little more. Maybe it's a little a little more humble, um, which I think maybe matches our personalities a little more too. Uh, so I'll say I'll say master. You can say expert. But yeah, I mean, we're at a level where we have engaged in this with such depth and for so much time that we really can intuitively uh, 
analyze and feel what's going on in someone's case, what the consular officers are going to feel and focus on and, uh, and consider a good thing or a bad thing. When we look at someone's DS-160 and then we have a, a conversation with them about what happened in the visa interview, I'd say 95% of the time, I am positive what the refusal reason was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I absolutely agree with you. And, and I think it's hard for people to understand because they're like, wait, how do you know that? And it's just, just exactly being in this environment. And I think that you actually can't get this level of experience unless you've done the work that we've done. You know, you can be the best immigration attorney in the world and you have filed the best petitions and you are a legal expert and a legal scholar and you do the best research. But unless you have worked in different consular sections around the world, it's really hard to understand this thing that I call consular culture. We have a certain way that we think about things and we're trained actually to think that way. You know, um, and this is why we have these sessions and these meetings to talk about cases. It's just that we can, at least for the most part, get to a certain consensus on how we feel about these cases. How do we make these decisions quickly? Um, How do we get these people out of the window? And, you know, I get asked this question all the time, Ben, I don't know about you, but people always want to know, you know, um, is it true that these officers can't explain, you know, why they decided to refuse somebody? And, and I think the answer might surprise most people. Visa officers actually can. Consular officers can tell you, okay, I refused you for these number of reasons on your case, but because we're so focused on the efficiency of the job, we're trying to get each person in and out of our window as quickly as possible. What we have learned over time is that if you actually give somebody concrete reasons, the reasons why you decided to refuse them, then the person will stop and try to argue with you. They're going to say, oh, well, you didn't really understand my case. You know, that's not really what I meant. Or can we start over? Or, you know, can you just give me another chance? I really need this visa to go on this business trip. And then that will drag out the interview. So we have learned over time that the most efficient way to get somebody to leave and accept the decision is to give them this piece of paper where we then say, okay, everything is explained on this piece of paper, go home, review it carefully. And you know what, if you want to, you can always apply again, because we know that makes that person feel better. Um, And really what is building is this visa record against them, you know, refusal after refusal, notes by multiple people, why this is happening. And that visa record is actually for life. You know, it'll follow you around, you know, from your tourist visa application to your student visa application to your green card application. I mean, everything is accessible to every consular officer. Um, You know, I know so many visa applicants who are like, oh, well, I was refused for my tourist visa, but I should be fine for my student visa. Or they think that, you know, they're actually, you know, on separate systems somehow, but that is just absolutely not the case. It's all connected and it's all accessible, which is why it's so important. And I can't stress this enough on making sure you keep that visa record um, pristine, that there's not a lot of confusion in there, questions from multiple consular officers about your motives or what you're going to go do. Um, It's just not worth the gamble. It's better to prepare before your very first interview to make sure that you're clear, you're concise, you are a good advocate for yourself. 100%. Number one, the best thing you can possibly do is be prepared before your first visa interview so that you don't get refused, right? 
You need to know what you need to say when you go into that interview, what you need to highlight, what you need to pivot to. Um, there are people, you know, we can, we do this all the time for people. We help people figure out what it is that they need to actually be putting in front of that consular officer when they go into that in interview, right? Um, and that's what helps them avoid getting refused the first time. Now, second to that, because I know if you're listening, maybe you've already been refused a visa. Uh, if you are already in the situation where you've been refused a visa, the thing that you've got to do is you've got to prepare because now it's going to be twice as hard when you go in because you first have to get that visa officer to just give you the time of day, right? They're seeing that previous refusal. They won't, They think they're going to be thinking, okay, I'm probably going to refuse. Just even if they don't want to, just psychologically, they see the prior refusal and then in their brain, what's the word in their brain? Refusal, right? They're just already going down that path. So you've got to first get them to give you a fair chance to even present your case. And then with your with your facts and your and your evidence and your and your your documents, but mostly what you're going to say to them, then you've got to convince them to give you your visa. So you know you've got two hurdles, whereas the first time you've got just one hurdle. Mm, yeah, that's such a good way that you put that then. Um, I have to say that the work that we do at Argo, where we help visa applicants prepare for their uh, that interview, um, for me, I don't know how it's been for you. For me, it's been just such a humbling experience having the time to actually go through people's life situations instead of the two minutes that we used to have at the window, you know, where the clock is ticking and you're presuming that this person is guilty uh, before they've even done anything. You know, now we have the time to prepare with applicants to actually fully understand their situation. Um, and, you know, I guess they say that life really kind of comes full circle. And I really enjoy this work a lot, being able to help people, knowing how big of a difference it makes in people's lives and helping them be successful at this very daunting interview. Oh, yeah, it's exciting. It's challenging. It's uh, fulfilling. I, I, I like doing this because this is what I wanted to do while I was working for the government. Uh, when I was doing these visa interviews, I saw too many of my colleagues frivolously refusing applicants. And so I wanted to do as many interviews as I could as fast as possible, just to prevent them from being able to do more on their end, right? I knew that if I did, if I did 20 extra interviews, that took 20 applicants away from them who might be refusing people unnecessarily. Right. And so now I'm on the outside and I can help people avoid getting unnecessarily refused because it really is. It's uh, first of all, it's an inconvenience. Right. At best, it's an inconvenience where, OK, well, you have to apply again and then, then you'll get your visa again. At worst, maybe it could be permanent. Maybe that first refusal leads to a second refusal. You got two refusal refusals on there well, then it's triply hard to get your visa mm. issued the next time, right? Yeah. So it could really not just be an inconvenience, but a real, you know, it could be a plan changer, right? Your university plans might have to change, your business plans might have to change, you know, and even though this isn't as uh, as uh, as dire, maybe your vacation plans have to change. Yeah. Um, but it's also, it's, uh, it's, it's dehumanizing, right? You go in and this person who doesn't know anything about you takes one glance at, at, a, at a piece of paper you've filled out, asks you two or three questions, and then says, no, you can't come to America. But mm -hmm. those other people I said they could go, but you can't go, right? Um, it's traumatizing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And understandably, uh, and I want, to, I want to help people avoid that and get over it, right? Get yeah. a victory. They've been, and they've had this humiliation, this, tra this trauma, uh, this this incorrect decision that they don't understand, and then helping them get over that, and then get you know get a victory the next time, and feel like okay, 
you know, that was, that was completely unjustified. I do deserve this. I do, I, I do deserve to go and do my studies in the U S you know, I am good enough. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just add that when I was working on the line, um, you know, my fellow, by the way, I, for, hmm. for the listeners who don't know, the line is what we call the row of windows where we do the visa interviews that's working on the line. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, I used to talk to colleagues all the time where we were like, why is there no company out there that is actually telling visa applicants the truth about what they're facing, you know, about how hard this process can be and why is nobody helping them prepare so that they're organized and know what we're looking for. And this reason is, you know, that's really why Argo exists is to dispel all of the misinformation out there, all the bad advice that people are getting from the internet. And maybe not even bad advice, but just advice that clearly doesn't fit your personal situation because everybody's circumstances are a little bit different. So there is no one size fits all visa advice. It has to be customized for you and it has to fit your life situation um, so that you can advocate for yourself uh, in this process. Definitely. 100%. So if, uh, if you're listening at home and you've, uh, you've got questions about visas, if you've had your own experience with a visa, with a visa interview, maybe you were refused and, uh, and you want to know, you want to know something more about it and you want to ask some experts who you can actually trust, write us at hello at argovisa.com. Hello, uh, as in the greeting at Argo, A-R-G-O, Visa, V-I-S-A.com. Um, and say that you're, you know, you heard us on the podcast and uh, the next time we're going to, we're going to pick some of these, uh, these uh, comments and questions that we get and we're going to answer them on air. Thank you guys so much. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode and you'll join us for the next one. See you next time. <laughs>